This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. Gospel of John chapter 2. I also want to let you know, uh, a week or two ago, I can't recall, but uh, I referenced a book that we have at the um, Resource Center now that I just want to let you know about. It's called Jesus the Evangelist, Learning to Share the Gospel from the Book of John. And so uh, what Richard Phillips does in this book is he just takes differing sections, some of which we've already studied, um, and looks at both the message of the gospel and how people communicate the gospel, and then seeks to really put together a biblical study of how to um, communicate the gospel based on what we see actually in this gospel. So I I haven't finished the book. I'm reading it now. Um, But once I started it, I was convinced it'd be worth our having it. So I wanted to let you know about that. We've got several copies out at the uh, Resource Center if you would like to pick that up. Okay, well, we're working our way through John. We're in chapter 2. Today we're going to look at verses 13. Uh, through 25, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in the scripture, that the words we've just read are God-breathed. And so we pray now, Lord, that you would open up our ears, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that we might understand your scripture and that we might respond to your scripture today. Lord, most of all, our prayer is, would you reveal to us and show to us the Savior, Jesus Christ, in this passage? For we know this section is to reveal something of you to us. And we pray that we would see you and that we would behold you, and that we would be changed by you today. 
God, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me grace to communicate the truth of this scripture to the wonderful folks gathered here today. Lord, we trust you for this time and ask you to meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage ties to the one that came right before it, the one we looked at last week, though that's not immediately evident because it's a very different passage. The passage we read last week was about Jesus uh, being at a wedding, and uh, they run out of wine at the wedding. It was probably like a a week-long feast that was going on. And so Jesus miraculously um, creates out of water, turns water into wine, makes up to about 180 gallons of wine. So it's an amazing, amazing miracle. He does that so that for a number of reasons, but one, so that the party can continue, excuse me, so that the groom won't be embarrassed for his deficiencies and not providing enough uh, wine because it was his responsibility at the wedding. So we see Jesus at this party doing a tremendous miracle, uh, which reveals something about him in the midst of it. And then a few verses later, here he is at the temple and he is kicking people out of the temple, basically. Someone wrote that Jesus goes from being the life of the party to crashing the party in just a few verses here. The wedding to the temple are very, very different in how he is responding. But in both cases, in, in both cases, something about Jesus is revealed. Something about the current religious situation and the person of Jesus is revealed in both of these passages, something that is very similar. They both point us to see Jesus as the Messiah, the one who has come to bring salvation, and the one who has come to make all things new. And we see him doing that in both of these accounts. You know, it's true that when we read last week's story, for some of us that may have been a head-scratcher. I mean, here's Jesus at this wedding party, and he is creating wine and high-quality wine and lots of it. So for some, that may have been a head-scratcher. What's Jesus doing that for? And hopefully we answered that. But in this passage, the same is true. Here is Jesus angry. Here is Jesus righteously indignant. Here is Jesus expressing holy wrath. And so that's a bit of a head-scratcher, too. What's going on here? Uh, I know gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that ain't this scene. What's happening? And so the beginning of uh, John's gospel can sort of affect our sensibilities a little bit. Jesus at the party making wine. Jesus making a whip and kicking people out of the temple, the religious folks. And John, from the very beginning, is just revealing to us that we don't have the privilege and opportunity to come to the Gospels with our own preconceptions and form Jesus into the person we would like him to be. Rather, we come to the Gospels as those who will be informed by God who Jesus is and what he is like. And we must come to God asking for grace that we can get our mind around the truth of who he is rather than trying to squeeze Jesus into the mold that we would like him to be in to cater to our sensibilities. He'll have no part of that. He'll have no part of that. He is who he is, and he reveals that to us here. So let's look at this story, taking it verse by verse and unpacking it and then seeing a little bit about what is going on and how does it apply to us. The context of the passage is Passover. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Three times a year, the people of Israel traveled from wherever they lived to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
and they would gather there for some type of a celebration, a, a, uh, a religious celebration with feasting and worship and sacrifices and such. And this is the biggest one, Passover. And Passover was a time where they remembered their history. They remembered back when the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And God delivered his people from Egypt. He brought his people out of Egypt through Moses, the deliverer. He raised him up. And he brought a number of signs that were judgments upon Pharaoh and his people for resisting God and not allowing uh, his people to go free to worship him. And the last of those signs was um, the fiercest. It was the death of the firstborn. And what happened was God told his people to kill a lamb and to take the blood of that sacrifice and put it on their doorposts. And when the death angel came over Egypt, if he saw the, the blood on the doorposts, then because of the sacrifice of that animal and because of their faith in God, they would, the, the wrath of God would skip over their house. They would, he, the wrath of God would pass over them. They wouldn't be touched by the judgment of God because of the sacrifice and the blood of this animal. And the Egyptians, on the other hand, experienced this plague, this judgment, the death of the firstborn. So it was a reminder to them that God delivered us, God freed us from slavery, that God passed over our sin because of the sacrifice of an animal. And so, and our, ultimately because of our faith and trust in him. And so, uh, and because of his grace and mercy. So they're here to celebrate that. It is a huge celebration. Estimates are 200, 225,000 people or more are gathered in Jerusalem. And they're there for this time of feasting and worshiping and sacrifices. And Jesus comes in to the feast, to the temple, to the celebration. And what's amazing here is that here is God in the flesh, according to chapter 1, Jesus Christ. And he is at the temple. He is the one that all of this Passover celebration points to. I mean, he is the sacrificial lamb, ultimately, so that those who have faith in Christ, those who are forgiven in Christ, the judgment of God passes over us if we have faith in Christ because of his death and his resurrection. So he is the one to whom it all points. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. And he's at the celebration that points to him. And people don't really even know who he is at this point, but very few, just his followers. And so he comes to the temple and he finds something distressing, grievous, concerning, something that causes him to react in actually a violent manner. Look at what he sees, verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their table. So he comes in to the temple. Now, in this passage, there are two different words used that are translated temple, and uh, they they have a a nuanced different meaning. One of them will occur later when Jesus refers to himself and talks about the temple. But in this passage, the word translated temple wasn't used for just the building itself, the building which housed the Holy of Holies, Sometimes we think of that as the temple, but more the temple grounds, the temple precincts, including the courts that were outside of the temple, which were an area of worship as well. The court of the Gentiles, for instance, which was an area outside the building of the temple, which was a place of worship as well. And so that's why the NIV translates this helpfully in verse 14, that they translate this in the temple courts, because it's the word that means broader and not more narrow, just the building. So Jesus walks into the temple courts, 
and what he sees uh, concerns him. This large area, the court of the Gentiles, and he sees all of these animals and they're being sold in the money changers. And he takes several cords and probably knots them together at one end to make a whip. And he begins to drive out these oxen and these sheep and those who were selling them. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us, but presumably the reason he makes a whip is because he can tell the people to get out. He can bring a, a, a judgment and a rebuke to them and tell them to get out. But if you walk up to an ox and say, get out of here, nothing's happening. Walk up to a sheep, leave now. Uh, nothing's happening. But with a whip, you hit the ox, you hit the sheep, you open the stall doors, and they start uh, going on their way. So assumably, I mean, we assume that that's what's happening. I don't know if he hit a person or not, but uh, it doesn't say that. But he for sure would have struck these animals in a way to direct them out. Uh, and he also turns over the tables of the money changers. There were people money changing in these courts. He turned their tables over. He poured out their coins. And then after that, it says, uh, in verse 16, he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So he doesn't use the whip on pigeons. Uh, pigeons are in cages. Um, these aren't tame pigeons that stand still. They're in a cage. And so uh, he just tells the, ca- the owners, get them out of here. And they take them out as well and clear everything out. And his concern is that they have made his father's house a house of trade. That's what he says in verse 16. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, when his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house, then his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So they think back to Psalm 69, which says, zeal for your house consumes me. And they apply that to Jesus and say, that's what that Psalm meant. It was pointing forward to this event. Now, whether they thought that right then or later, it doesn't tell us, but they came to the conclusion. This is the work of God in his temple. This is Christ coming with being consumed with a sense of zeal for the father's house. And that explains the cleansing of the temple. He's revealing, this is like a prophetic act He is revealing the holy anger of God towards the behavior of the religious people here. There's a righteous indignation against the way God's people are behaving. Now, why is he so upset? What are they doing that is so reprehensible that would bring this holy outburst from Christ? Christ is sinless. He doesn't sin in this outburst. It is a righteous response to sin. And uh, we need to understand, why does he do that? I mean, is it wrong to sell animals for the Passover? No, it's not wrong. As a matter of fact, these people are doing a service to the worshipers, ultimately. Here's Here's how it would happen. You travel... From many from long distances. You might be bringing your family. It may have just been the father that came. Um, he may have been bringing the whole family. And you're traveling to Jerusalem. And if you've ever taken a vacation, if you've had young kids, piled everybody into the van, 
and taken a vacation, I want you to think about like whatever your worst experience was and multiply it by thousands because that's what it would have been like here. You're not popping everybody on a donkey with a DVD player so that everybody can watch videos until we can stop at the next town at McDonald's and play on the playground for a break. And I mean, this is just a long, boring walk to Jerusalem. And what would make it worse is you have to offer a sacrifice for your sin. So you would need to bring an ox or a sheep um, or the poor offered were, were allowed to offer pigeons or doves. And so if you can imagine this, just getting the family there, and the answer is we are not almost there yet. This is a long trip, and we're towing an ox. Or we're trying to get a sheep going with us. Or we've got every kid carrying a birdcage because we've got four pigeons to go sacrifice. So these folks are doing a tremendous service because what they're allowing folks to do is you take your ox, you sell your ox, and you carry the money, and then you travel to Jerusalem. You go to the buyer, I mean, to the sellers of animals, to their stalls. You buy an ox with the money you sold yours for. You buy a sheep, and then it's a matter of feet, not miles, that that has to be transported for sacrifice. So they're doing people a, a, a service here. Jesus isn't opposed to the selling of animals uh, per se. What about the money changers? I mean, is that forbidden? Well, that's actually an acceptable practice as well. The reason is because people would come, and if you were 20 years, if you were a male, 20 years or older, you were required to, uh, to pay a tax to the temple for the maintenance of the temple. And you were required to pay the tax to the temple in the local currency here. You had to pay a half shekel. And if you're from an outlying area and your currency is different and you don't deal in shekels, then you have to, just like if you were to visit uh, Mexico and you needed to, you know, um, exchange your currency into pesos or something like that, or euros if you went to Europe. A very similar thing. That's the currency that's accepted. And so the temple accepted the shekel. So people needed to make a, an exchange for their, their money. And so that's not wrong in itself. Now, um, it's possible that they're, they're adding a surcharge to it and an exorbitant surcharge to it. You ever bought a ticket to a concert or a game online? And maybe it says your ticket is, if had this happen, your ticket is $30, click to the next screen. Put in all your info, great. You click to the next screen, you know, on your computer, on the internet. Uh, here's the service fee, $47. You're like, what? what? That's more than the ticket. I mean, but that's what happens. It's going to cost me $77 and somebody's getting $47 for, I don't know what they're doing. It's just a click and I got a ticket. I'm printing it out on my paper on my computer and you're charging me. I don't understand that. So that seems like uh, inappropriate to me. So it could have been something like that. They could have been uh, doing that. In, in, the, in the gospel of Mark, when we see the temple cleansing, uh, Jesus does make some allusion uh, to these individuals being a den of robbers, which basically just means their a den was a place where you hung out and lived. So they're they're in that case they're communicating something about their character and their gathering. But he doesn't say anything like that here. In John's case, he's not saying that the primary issue is they're charging too much. He doesn't give us that indication here. He doesn't say the primary issue could be a secondary issue, but he doesn't say a primary issue is that they're selling animals. That's a service. Exchange of money, that's a service. Arguably a blessing. It's helpful so you didn't have to tote your ox to the Passover. So what's the problem? 
if the exchange of money is not forbidden and the sale of animals is not forbidden, why is Jesus so upset? Well, the problem is not the sale or the exchange. The problem is the location of the sale and of the exchange. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep. Verse 15, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. The emphasis is, don't do that here. What does he go on to say to the people with the pigeons? They're selling the pigeons. Take, verse 16, take these things away. Why? Because it's wrong to sell pigeons? It's not what he says. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The problem is, this is the father's house. The purpose of this area is worship. This is in the temple courts, which is still to be an area of worship. And you are making it a market. You are making it a street bazaar. That is the problem that he has with what's going on here. Imagine this. God comes to church. That's what's happening. God in the flesh shows up at the temple. And in the area of this open court, he doesn't see people bowed in prayer. He sees people selling oxen. He doesn't find people meditating on God. He doesn't find them kneeling in prayer. He finds them lined up to trade in their money for shekels. It's a market. He comes, it is the, instead of hearing, hearing someone praying or hearing someone singing, what he hears is the sound of sheep. It smells like a farm. This is not the environment. This is not the intent of the temple courts. This is not the intent of the temple at Passover. He comes to worship and in the area of worship, it'd be like walking into the Fort Worth Livestock Show. That's what's going on. There's stalls and animals and noise. And you can imagine the commotion of animals and lines of people and waiting and got to get my animal and all that's going on with all of this. Now, previously, history tells us that this activity used to be done outside of the temple across outside of the city at the base of the Mount of Olives. So it used to be done apart, but for some reason, the scripture doesn't tell us, for some reason this has been brought into the temple, verse 14, in the temple, in the temple courts, in the temple precincts, it's been brought in. We don't know why, could have been for convenience, but for whatever reason, they brought it in, it is hindering the purpose of the room, the area, the space. This is... The Father's house, not a market. And, and there's something else going on here that's Im- important. Because the word is not the exact temple with the Holy of Holies, but the area, the temple precincts, the temple courts, they're likely in the court of the Gentiles is where this is going on, an open area. Whereas if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you were coming to worship, you were coming to Passover, this was your area. You couldn't go into the temple. Even if you were a God-fearer, this was the area that you would celebrate. This is the area that you would honor God. You would pray. You would meditate. And so if you're a Gentile coming to Passover, there is not a space for you. If you're coming as a Gentile to Passover, your worship space 
is shared with an ox. If you're coming to Passover, your worship space is the money exchange area. If you're a Gentile, you have been displaced. Gentiles have lost their place in the Father's house. That's the problem. One of the other Gospels, I think it's Mark, but one of the other Gospels in talking about the temple cleansing talks about the fact that this is a house, the Father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. It means that all nations can gather here and pray. But they've forgotten about the nations. They've forgotten about the Gentiles. This isn't a place for the Gentiles to come and pray. This is a street market. And so the intent of the house, the Father's house, the worship of God, the place the people of God came and commemorated the works of God and remembered the deliverance from Egypt and celebrated the God who rescues, the God who saves, the God who passes over our sins because of the sacrifice of a substitute. All of that does not happen for the Gentiles because they've lost their space. It's not worship, it's a market that's going on here. And this agitates the holy heart of Jesus. And zeal for the Father's house consumes him. Jesus is indescribably passionate about the Father. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Father has sent the Son. And he has come to rescue and to save and to draw people back to the Father, to restore them. And yet while he is here in the temple at this Passover feast, this celebration, he is observing a callousness, a flippancy with the worship of God's people. That's what he's reacting to. He wants God to be honored and God's not honored. He wants focus to be on the God who's delivered his people. Folks are distracted. They're not participating in that. See, here's, here's what's going on. These folks have elevated the form of worship. They've got the form of worship. We're supposed to offer a sacrifice. We're doing that. Supposed to pay a temple tax to maintain the, the father's house. We're doing that. I mean, they might argue this. I mean, they could argue it, say, we're concerned about sacrifices. We set up a system to offer them. We're concerned about payment of the temple tax. That is a holy act of worship and stewardship. We're just facilitating people being able to get the right coinage to give to the Lord. We are concerned about worship. But the problem is they've elevated the, these forms of worship but they have missed the heart of worship because they've taken the area which should be given to people coming in and thinking about God, meditating on God, encountering God. This is a place of attentive attitudes. This is a place of genuine gratitude. This is the place of meaningful worship and adoration and thanks to God. And none of that is on their radar. Commerce, chain, uh, uh, sales, uh, the, the function of getting the stuff right so that we can worship. They're stuck on the form, but they're denied the, the heart of godliness, the heart of worship. 
It, it is a cavalier attitude to the Father in His house. And it's not only a cavalier attitude towards God, it's a cavalier attitude towards others. They're neither appropriately loving God, nor are they loving others. Because what about the Gentiles? They're preferring themselves, they're aware of their sacrifice, they're aware of their temple tax, but they're not aware of Gentiles encountering God Almighty. They're not aware of how can we make space and facilitate their worship of God. They're not zealous for God's honor to where they would say, whatever it takes, we want, this is wonderful. A Gentile would come and praise the God of Israel, clear him a space, make her room to worship God. That's not their attitude. They've got business conduct. They've got to do their worship deal. And Jesus will have none of it. In a couple chapters, we're going to read a fascinating passage in John 4 where Jesus makes this statement about the mission of Jesus. John quotes Jesus. Jesus makes this statement about the mission of Jesus. Please listen to this. John 4, 22. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Listen. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Do you see that? God sends the Son, Jesus, so that He can reveal God to them. So that He will give His life and die on the cross and pay for sins and be resurrected on the third day to save people and restore them to the Father. Why? So that they can be worshipers of the Father. Jesus comes to rescue worshipers, to win back people to God the Father, to take people who are enemies of God and make them friends of God, to take people that are haters of God and make them lovers of God, to take people that worship themselves and save them and give them a new heart so that they become worshipers of the Father. Listen, Jesus isn't coming just to get a sign up so people can sign up for God's religion. Jesus isn't coming as a self-help guru so he can just fix the problems in your life. Uh, Jesus does love us and care for us. And his death and resurrection goes a long way to fixing problems in our lives and totally fixes all of our problems in eternity. But in the first place, I don't know how to say this, but in the first place, he doesn't come for me and for you. He comes for the Father in the first place. You are important. I am important. He dies for real people. But the ultimate importance is to win worshipers for the Father so that our hearts are turned and we're restored to a place where we're acknowledging what should be acknowledged, the glory of the Creator, so that we're in right relationship with the Creator, so that our life will have the meaning that it's supposed to have, the joy, the purpose, the reason we were created, to know God. And that only happens when we're restored to become a worshiper of God. Jesus comes to save us from God, from the wrath of God. But he also comes to save us to God and for God as his worshipers. And he comes to save us so that we can enjoy God as well. God's pursuing worshipers. But at the Passover, worshipers are not being pursued. The forms there. But the heart is distant. And if you're a Gentile, there's no place for you in the Father's house. He's grieved over this. 
Well, after his action, the Jews have a few questions. Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's interesting. They don't question what he says. The Jewish leaders don't come and say, that's not right. Now, they know they're caught. The moral force of him kicking people out, they've gone running. There's probably some level of conviction or awareness that what's happening is not right, perhaps. So they're going, but they would say, we want to see a sign. What Jesus is doing is kind of messianic. I mean, this guy's making bold claims. This is my father's house. Whoa. Okay, well, show us a sign that you are. That sounds kind of messianic. If you're the Messiah, show us. The Messiah is going to do signs. Show us. And then this is what Jesus says. Well, here's the sign. Here's the sign. Tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll build it back up. Now, as often happens in John, they take him literally, and they don't understand. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's going to say, how do I get my mother's womb? And he's going all literal, and Jesus is going metaphor there. So there's a miscommunication. The same thing happens here. He's not talking about that physical temple. And after he's resurrected, his disciples remember this. That's what he meant. Because he is the temple, he's going to die and be buried. And on the third day, he will raise to life. He's the new temple. That's what he's saying. All this, this just points towards me, is what Jesus says. This is where this story really connects to last week, the turning of water into wine. They took the purification water, the Jewish ceremonial purification water, and he turns it to wine. He transforms. He makes the old ceremonial law obsolete, and he brings something new. He's the new way. And here he takes the temple, the old temple, which housed God, and he says, something's different now. I'm going to be resurrected from the dead, and I am the center of worship, not this building. Jesus is saying, I house God, so to speak, because I am God, just as the temple was the place. If you want to get to the Father, you would come to the temple, offer sacrifice. He's saying, I am the sacrifice, so I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the way to the Father. He is the new temple. Tremendous revelation that he is making here. That's the sign. You want to know that I'm the Messiah? I'll be resurrected. All of this points to me is what he's saying. He replaces the temple, the new way, the new revelation, the new place to meet God. He is the access to God. He is God. Jesus cleanses the temple to make way for the new temple, to direct people away from this apathetic, distracted, external, inconsiderate, going through the motions worship so that they may see him as the center of worship so that they may see new life and receive new life in him, so that their hearts may be turned to Jesus and that they may experience the zeal for the Father's house that is his. I think that's how this text relates to us. I think that's how it relates. See, as we look at Jesus, as we, and we're doing this for a year as we go through John, as we look at Jesus, as we consider his nature, his character, his words, his works, The goal would be that as we see him, we are changed by him and that his zeal would come alive in our hearts. That what Jesus is zealous about, may that be what we're zealous about. What Jesus is concerned about, may that be what we are concerned about. See, as we look at Jesus and his zeal comes alive in our lives, one of the results of that should be a growing worship of the Savior. 
growing worship of the Father. As we know Christ, our worship will change. Now, our life of worship will change. We're to live lives of worship, to live as living sacrifices before God, the Bible teaches us. But I'm talking here about our gathered worship. What does that mean? It's what we're doing right now. We gather from a life of seven days of worship to a focused Lord's Day worship where we're worshiping together. So in our gathered worship, we want to be those who carry Christ's zeal for the Father's glory because the Father is seeking worshipers. He sends Jesus to reconcile us to the Father through his death on our behalf. He's resurrected to break the power of sin, and that is to change our view, to change our heart, to change our motives, that we might be zealous for God's glory, not like the folks at the Passover, not careless, thoughtless, going through the religious motions. You know, some of us can have the impression that just to be religious and sort of dry means you know, something out of the 1950s, something that's sort of dated and empty and very ritualistic and you know, we can often think that it's just, it's, it's dated, it's distant, it's not relevant, and people that worship that way are just sort of formal and dead. Listen, you can come into the most lively gathering imaginable and still be religious and detached from God. It's not about the forms, it's about the heart. And once we see Christ, meditate on him, aware of his sacrifice for us, we want our hearts changed to be zealous for what he is zealous for. These folks had the form but lacked the heart. And when we are gripped by Christ, it will affect how we gather. Now, I understand this is a primary truth, that we gather here and are acceptable to God the Father because of what Christ has done for us. We don't gather here with zeal, and because of our zeal, we're accepted by God. We're not trying to get everybody pumped up and let's be zealous because God loves us more and accepts us more if we're zealous. No, the the scripture is clear that God accepts us because Jesus obeyed in our place. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus was resurrected and is ascended and is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And we come and say, we're here because of Christ. We're with him. He's the one who won won our way. And we're coming to the Father through Jesus. That's why we're accepted before the Father, not on our works. As we see Jesus and as we're changed by him, we will, however, share his heart. It should not be the case that we say, we're here because what Christ has done, so that's going to promote flippancy and carelessness. It should promote joy and sobriety and engagement with God and love for God and zeal for God. Zeal for God. It should affect how I come to the gathered worship on Sunday mornings. It should mean that I'm not flippant, but zealous. It should mean that I come with an attitude that is, God, I want you to be glorified. I don't, I can't believe I get to play a part in that by singing, praying, meditating, hearing the word, fellowshipping. It's unbelievable, God, that my life, as messed up as I am, that I could bring you glory in Christ. But I want to do that. Having a zeal for the Father's house means to come with an attentive spirit, a broken and contrite spirit, and an attentive heart to God. Not a distracted, detached, but engaging with Jesus because of what he has done for us. It should affect the mentality, what we think about. 
engaging with the words we sing, listening and amen, amening in our souls with the public prayers we hear, listening carefully to the word of God, seeking to apply it to bring praise and, and glory to God, not as an attached, cynical critic, just sort of saying, yeah, okay, show me what you got. Impress me. What's going on here? This isn't a show. This is the Father's house because his people are gathered. When the children gather, it's the Father's house, regardless of the building. This is the Father's house, and we're gathered for his glory, and we want his zeal to consume us. It starts in the mind, but it doesn't end in the mind. It should stir the affections and should be expressed and demonstrated through the body. To be a demonstrative worshiper doesn't mean that your heart's engaged. It may just mean you're flailing around in the room. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean you love Jesus. He who jumps the, the highest, shouts the loudest, sings the boldest, could have the coldest heart in the room. I realize that. But it also means that when zeal is in my heart for the Father, that my whole person is going to engage and express. That's the beauty of worship. It's not just mental. It's not just physical. It's not just affective, our, our emotions. It's the whole package. It's, Lord, a living sacrifice, all that I am. So we want minds engaged, hearts overflowing with what's ever appropriate at the moment. Conviction, joy, sobriety, fear. Whatever it is, fear of God, whatever it is, we want to respond, and we want that to inform our being. I mean, it would be a little disconnected if I was saying these passionate things like this to you. This, this would be really strange if I say, passionate for Jesus, and I have the ability to move. Why am I demonstrative? Because the truth of this is gripping my heart, my mind, my soul, and I want it to come out in a way that's, that's uh, cohesive, that has integrity, that as a whole person, we're worshiping the Lord. So it affects how we respond, how we listen, how we think, how we pray. It affects what time we show up. I'm not trying to make some legalistic deal here, but if zeal for the Father's house, which characterized Jesus, is more characterizing me because I'm focusing on Jesus and his zeal is becoming my zeal, then it'll just affect everything about gathered worship for me, including how I arrive, when I arrive. So, as we look at Jesus, we want his zeal, by grace, to be our zeal. Zealous for the Father's glory. Here's the other thing. It's a secondary point in this passage, but it's an important one. That when we look at Jesus and his zeal is alive in us, it changes the way, not only we look at the Father and what matters to us, but it changes the way we look at others. We should be involved in gathered worship with a heart, with, a, with an eye towards others. Not trying to impress others, not worrying what do they think. I'm not saying that. But a concern for others. See, these folks had the form but not the heart. And so they got the animals and they got the money, but they didn't care about the Gentiles who had no spot to worship. They had the forms right. They didn't have the heart. They weren't thinking, God, we want you to be glorified by all these people. And so what can we do to make a way for them? Now, here's where this is an interesting application because there's not a one-to-one -one application. The Bible says that in Christ, there's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. And that's generally speaking about access to God. There were those barriers under the old covenant in terms of corporate worship like they experienced. The Gentiles had a restricted area which had been taken over by animals. But that, they had a restricted area. We don't have that now. 
You know, we don't have certain people have to be out in the lobby based on their heritage or something. Everybody just comes in at Christ, which is wonderful. It's a great day to relate with God, isn't it, under the new covenant. Glorious, glorious, glorious. But the principle here, we do have. There is such a thing kind of as in gathered worship. There is kind of an insider-outsider thing. And so if you're an insider, you know the Lord, you're part of the church, you want to come with a heart that makes room for someone who may feel they're an outsider, like the unbeliever. Like the unbeliever. Is there a space in my heart so that I don't crowd out the unbeliever? See, the Gentiles are crowded out by religious worship. I mean, is this ironic? Religious worship crowds out people so that they can't interact with God. Is there a heart for those who don't know Christ who would be here? If you don't know the Lord, uh, our prayer is that you don't feel a barrier, but that you feel welcomed here. Even if you're just examining, considering, checking it out, we're really glad that you are here. And we're not perfect, and there may be some barriers that are coming through in certain things we say or do, which you'd be welcome to point out to us because we don't want those to be there. We're not wanting there to be these kind of social insider-outsider barriers that separate so that anybody can't come in here and hear the truth of God and the gospel. Anyone is welcome to come and hear the gospel. Do we have a heart for that person? Or how about the guest, the newer person? Am I so into my form of worship that I'm just looking to me and my friends and my worship and our community? We're all about community, but am I just looking about my community at the expense of the guest? Or do I have a heart that I want everyone to know God and interact with him? And I'll take time away from my so-called community where I'm familiar to engage with the new person, to care, to love, to draw them in. Because I want God to receive their worship. I want them to know God. I want to reflect God's love back to them. How about the struggling person in our midst? The immature Christian. The baby Christian, the struggling Christian, the wandering Christian, the sheep that is wandering a bit in their life. I mean, do we make room for the person that just doesn't match up? The person whose life is troubled? Or are we just about, I just want to be around like the really good, healthy, godly, mature people like me. Which probably means you're not godly and mature because you just assigned that label to yourself. Or myself, I can do that. Right? So I just want to be around the people that, people that are, have their life messed up and wandering and they're on again, off again with Jesus. Is there a place for them? Is there a zeal for the Father that says, I want God to receive glory and worship through this person's life. So any way I could be used to help this person so that God is honored and so that they enjoy God in their life and are mature and aren't wasting their life, but are investing their, what can I do to help them? Where can I make room in my heart? Or do I just crowd out the people that are different than me? The Gentiles were crowded out in the very act of people's religious duty. Go to small group, come on Sunday. My religious duty, quote unquote, does it crowd anyone out or does it make room? And make space because I'm so zealous that God be honored by them. I want to make room. Listen, the Bible makes this point in 2 Corinthians. We've talked about it throughout this series. That we are becoming 
what we are beholding. And we're beholding something of Jesus in this passage. That he's the new temple. He's the God, he is God. He's the way to God. He's the access to God. He's the one who forgives our sins. And he's zealous for God. And we want his heart for the Father to be our heart for the Father. When we behold that consistently, we will become something. Because we're becoming what we're beholding. Are you be- beholding money today? You're becoming something. If money is our God, if money is our drive, if we are chasing more stuff and things so that we have security and we're protected for the future and our identity and our joy is in that, then we're wasting our lives. We're not zealous for the Father's glory. We're zealous for our security and our status and our pleasure. Are you beholding pornography? If so, if that's an addiction or or a regular practice in your life, then what is happening with your life is your soul is shriveling. It's shriveling up. And it's losing its capacity to taste the glory of God and enjoy the person of Christ because there is a pursuit of a false world, a fantasy that is killing you. Are you beholding the approval of others? Is that what's driving you today? It's you want to be well-respected, well-liked. You want everyone to speak highly of you, love you, esteem you, respect you, think that you are smart, think that you are attractive, think that you are wealthy, think that you are athletic, think that you are successful. Fill in the blank. Anything can go in there. If If we are beholding the approval of others, that's what we're living for. And we will make decisions and choices and actions. And we're just chasing the wind, grasping at something that's not there. You'll never find joy and satisfaction and meaning in the approval of others. And you'll never glorify God if that's your chase. That's your direction. It could be all beholding all kinds of things. But if we're beholding Jesus, he becomes our desire. The desire that replaces those other desires, that supersedes those other desires. He becomes the one that means so much to us that we find our life in him and we begin to share his zeal for the glory of God, that his father's house be a place where God is honored first. A zeal to see God as supreme and premier in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. If we're seeing Jesus, the new temple, he's God. He's the one we live for. He's the one we pursue. He's the one where we find the reason we were created, to give glory to the Father. There's grace to forgive all of our sins and all of the, every one of us are beholding various things. There's grace to turn around and repent and refocus and behold Jesus because that's where change comes. That's where change comes. We want to behold him and believe and trust him to turn our hearts. That we may be zealous, not for us, not for our religious practices, not for our pleasures and our goods. We want to be zealous for the Father who sent the Son to give his life to change everything in ours. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.com dot o-r-g